The book of Ruth is where we're going to look. If you have one of our church Bibles, please open to page 222. Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's a wonderful story of romance and redemption. But before we actually look at Ruth, I have a question for you from your life. I would like to know what is your number one goal in life? What's your number one goal in life? Say, well, I'd really like to be a success in my work, have my career go well, maybe end up with a nice, comfortable retirement. Maybe my goal in life is simply to, to live as long as I can and stay healthy, stay out of a hospital, uh, pay all my bills, stay out of bankruptcy, uh, just be happy, you know, ha not have a, a lot of stress, just have a happy, you know, easy-go-lucky life. Maybe the goal is I just want to parent kids and make sure I raise good kids who end up having a good life and a good career. Or for some, maybe my goal is just to, to pastor a church and see it grow and people grow in the Lord and know, more people come to know the Lord. We all have, maybe have a different goal in our life, but for Christians, we all have one supreme objective in life. One objective that transcends all other goals and purposes for life. And Paul states it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.9. Whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul says wherever we are, our purpose, our aim, our goal is always to please God. So when I'm parenting, it's not just to make my kids good or my kids like me. It's to please God in my parenting. I do my work every day not to make my boss happy, not to get a paycheck, not to just uh, survive. But I work to please God the way I work, the way I respond to people at my work, the way I take care of the money that I earn at my work. It's all to please God. I have a marriage and I want my wife to be happy and I want her to like me and I want her to have a good life. But my primary goal is I want God to be pleased with the kind of husband I am to this wonderful woman he's given me. I pastor, not for people's sake, but to please God primarily. I preach a sermon, not so it'll be great and people will love it, but I preach to please God in the way I handle his word. And so whether it's retirement vacation, whether it's taking care of our house or whatever in life, the goal in life is always to please God. Now you might be saying and say, oh boy, that's great, but if only we knew how. How do you please the God of the universe? How do you put a smile on the creator, sovereign God's face every day in this world in which we live? Well, it's really not a mystery, friend, because God, in his grace, has revealed himself to us in a book that we call the Bible, the revealed scriptures of God. Help us to know God. Who is he? What's he like? What's his heart? How, uh, what pleases him? And so we go to the word to know our God. And of all the many statements we could pick, let me just give you one for starters, friends. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let me say that again. Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Would you like to say that with me if you can? It might help you remember this. Without faith, 
It is impossible to please God. Well, that helps me to see if I'm going to please God in my work, in my marriage, in my preaching, in my money management, in my vacation, in anything I do, I have to do it by faith. So we're here to worship this morning, not out of ritual, but by faith. We go through our week ahead, not in dependence on ourselves. And we've got the script and the agenda. We know what our week is going to be like, planned to a T. We walk by faith. We're not governed and influenced by what's going on and people around us and the world around us. That is not our determiner. We live by faith in order to please God. And so we who've been here this month have been studying faith, particularly the ladies of faith that are heroes in the Bible, as we see faith lived out in the real world by real people like us. So we will conclude this morning by looking at a lady of faith in the book of Ruth. Her name is Ruth, and I'll just title this message, Lessons from a Widow's Faith. Lessons from a Widow's Faith. If we want the kind of faith that pleases God, then we can learn from Ruth what that faith looks like. I'm going to invite you to follow along before we look at her faith. Let's get a little glimpse of her life context. Where is she? What's going on? Before we actually see Ruth's faith. I'll start reading at chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read the opening five verses if you want to follow in your Bible. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We're told this book, this story that we're about to read, <clears throat> takes place in the days when the judges ruled. In the days of the judges were approximately, just to give you a time frame, 1100 years B.C. So 1100 years before Jesus is born, we're in Old Testament history during the days of Israel. The days of judges were that in-between time between Moses the prophet and then his successor, Joshua, who took the lead and led the people of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land. Moses dies, Joshua takes over, Joshua dies, and down the road they'll start having kings. King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon, and the whole line of, of kings in Israel. But before the kings, and after the prophets, Moses and Joshua, the days of the judges. What kind of days were those? Just turn one page back to the very last verse of the previous book of the Bible, which is the book of Judges. And the last verse will summarize that time period. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a day, a dark day in the history of Israel. Without a king, but that really wasn't true. They had a king, 
He was just a heavenly king, a divine king. But they didn't have a human earthly king, and so everyone did what they thought they should do. Everyone lived for themselves. Everyone was was self-pleasing, self-governing, self-centered. And you can imagine what that does. We can just look in our world, in our society. In our, when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, it becomes chaos, anarchy. So if you want some fun reading, not so fun reading, read through the book of Judges sometime. It will upset your stomach, literally. It gets so gross. There's such grave debauchery, total idolatry and immorality. I wouldn't even read some of this to little children. Be careful. It, it gets that bad. And God's word is very honest to show God's people, Israel, when they don't trust the Lord, when they break covenant and they do their own thing, not God's thing, it ends up miserable. And so too in our lives, when we don't do life God's way and it's our way, it hurts. Proverbs says the way of the transgressor is hard. And I think we could all say, yeah, I remember some really hard times in my life when I did life my way, not God's way. But praise God in his grace, even in the darkest times, in the days of judges, he shows that he can still work in the hearts of those who will put their faith in him. So we're going to see this gem of faith in Ruth with the backdrop of black darkness in her country, in her, in her world. The world is falling apart around us, but that doesn't stop God from working among us. There was a personal crisis as well as this national upheaval and corruption in Israel. What's the personal crisis we find here in these opening verses? I mean, you want to talk about a family being hit hard. We all know that the grief of losing a loved one. But when it's one after another after another, or there's a multiple family death, it is beyond devastating. But here is Naomi who says goodbye to her husband, and then to one son, and then two sons. And Ruth happens to be one of the young widowed daughters-in-law who is now under the authority or leadership of her elderly mother-in-law, who's also a widow. Wow, how can anything good come out of this? So let me tell you, friends, what you might have already seen in your life or others, it is sometimes the crisis of life that God brings forth some of the greatest victories and blessings. It is the troublesome times out of which faith can shine and grow and sparkle. For some, it, takes, uh, it will take death of loved ones, as in this context. For some, it takes a hospital bed to get their attention to the Lord. For some, a prison cell. For some, a foxhole in the middle of battle. Death all around them. For some, financial ruin or some other upheaval in life. God can use a crisis to capture a heart's attention and bring it to faith in Lord, in the Lord. Doesn't have to be a crisis, but sometimes it is. And in this case, it is. All right, so now let's learn some lessons about faith. And I'll try and be as quick as possible. And uh, Mark, do you have a watch? I, my watch is tied up here. John, what time is it? 10.47. 10.47. All right, I'm going to ask you once in a while for a time check. Because I want to be very careful to respect your time and, and to end at our usual time. 
Lesson number one. This is the obvious one. Faith decides. There's always a starting point for faith. It's not a, something that has always been there. I've talked to people, maybe you have too. I ask them about their relation to the Lord. Are you a Christian or are you a follower of Jesus or do you believe in Christ? And sometimes I'll have people say, oh, I always have believed. I've always been a Christian. Well, that's really not true. Because according to the scripture, we've always been a sinner. We're born in sin. Actually, David said in Psalm 51, I was conceived in iniquity. From the moment my human life started at conception in the womb, I took on human nature, and human nature, since Adam and Eve, has been infected with a sin nature. So I've always been a sinner. I've been born that. I need to be born again to become a child of God. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So there has to be a starting point to that Christian faith that brings us into relationship with the Lord. Let's look at how it happened for Ruth. Verse 6, Then she, this is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. All right, so Naomi, having left Bethlehem in Judah to go over to Moab during the days of famine, now 10 plus years later has heard the famine is over. They're back to good crops, prosperity back in the homeland. Let's go back home to Bethlehem. Except Naomi doesn't have any family to go with her except her daughters-in-law. So if you were to read the rest of this paragraph, which I won't now, but I encourage you, it'd be a good Sunday afternoon activity. Have your devotional. Just read through the little four chapters of Ruth and fill in some of the details that we won't take time for now. But Naomi turns to or Orpah and Ruth and says, Girls, you've been very faithful. You were wonderful wives to my sons. Appreciated that. You were very respectful and honoring to your mother-in-law. I appreciate that. But I'm going back home. And this is your home. You're from Moab, so I can't expect you or require you to come back with me. Why don't you go back to your homeland, go back to your family, go back to your life here. You've got more life here than I can offer you back in Bethlehem of Israel. And they have tearful hugging and a, a weeping. And uh, Orpah turns and goes back. But if you'll notice, uh, let me pick up at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, this is Naomi, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Naomi feels um, you know, concern for Ruth. Ruth, I can't expect you to come back. I don't know what's... I'm a widow. I don't have... Uh, anything to promise you to take care of you back in Israel, which is a strange land for you. Honey, you can just stay here and I won't think anything less of you. But Ruth won't have it. Notice what she says in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And most importantly, look at this last one. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord 
Notice Lord is capitalized. That's the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah. The personal name of the covenant God of Israel. May the Lord do so to me and more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow, she made a decision here at the crossroads in her life where she had a choice to make. Go back to the old ways. Go back to my homeland, my old family, my old gods, as Orpah did. Notice little g gods. Moab had their own pantheon of gods. You may have heard or read elsewhere in the Old Testament about the god named Chemosh. Moab's chief god was Chemosh, to whom... Babies would be offered as fire, uh, as fiery offerings, sacrifices. I mean, it, it was one of the many perverted gods. Orpah's going back to her gods. Ruth, are you going to do that? No, she says. I don't want those gods. I want your God. I want the living and true God, the God of Israel. His name is Yahweh. I've learned enough from you, Naomi. I've seen enough of him in your life. I want to be one of your people. And at that moment... Her faith converts her from pagan idolatry to true relationship with the living and true God. Wow. And you see that faith in the commitment. She says, I'm going with you wherever you go. Doesn't matter. I'm with you. The love, the loyalty, the commitment in that woman's faith. Oh, would to God that would be the love, the loyalty, the commitment in my faith and yours to follow the Lord. And sometimes I mean just following the people the Lord puts in our life, but we see Christ and we follow them as they follow Christ, be it a pastor, be it a, a mature Christian that you look up to and a, a, a friend in Christ who is an encourager and you walk together following the Lord. So her faith has now started. It's little baby faith. It's just a seed faith, but she's a believer now. Friend, do you remember the time when you came to faith? Do you remember when it started? Oh, it's so clear in my mind like it was yesterday in a McDonald's restaurant on Layton Avenue near the Milwaukee airport. November 13, 1975, I was a junior in college, and my friend that night, after meeting with me a few times, had showed me all of God's wonderful promises for salvation in the Bible. It had nothing to do with joining a church, getting baptized, trying to be a good person, do a lot of religious rituals. It had to do with a heart faith in the person of Jesus Christ who died for my sins. And it clicked. And I knew it was true. And the Spirit of God had so convinced and convicted me that at that moment, in a McDonald's restaurant of all places, I wanted to bow my head admit my sin and accept Christ as my Savior right there. And I was born into the family. I was converted. I was saved in little act of faith. If you're not sure that's ever been your experience, if you can't point back to a time, maybe you don't know the date on the calendar, that's not the important thing, but you can't remember the specific time where you turn from being an unbeliever to being a believer, then why not today make this the day of your decision. I know I'm a sinner. No one has to prove that to me. I know my heart. I know God is holy, and if I'm going to get in his holy presence, I have to have something happen to get rid of my sin. Nothing I do can take away that sin. Jesus can. I need Jesus. I want Jesus. 
I take him by faith. Ruth's faith has begun. And verse 22 says at the end of chapter 1, they're back at Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So now what? You got two widows, an older one and a younger one, but they're widows nonetheless. How are they going to survive? There's no social security plan for widows back then. There's no widow's aid society. There's no government assistant programs, food stamps or anything. How are these women going to survive? I'm glad you're asking that question because chapter two will answer that. Her faith, little faith that it is, now goes to work. And lesson number two from chapter two is faith works. Faith goes to work. This is the kind of faith that pleases God. Sometimes, for some people, faith is an excuse to be lazy. Well, I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm just going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs and pray and see what God wants to do. Well, faith is never an excuse for laziness. Faith is always a reason, a motivation to propel us to action. Let's see what Ruth's action is. Chapter 2, I'll read verse 2. Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And off goes Ruth. Ruth, in a moment of ambition, initiative, says, I I'm going to go do some work. I'm going to go glean since it's harvest time um, maybe i can get enough grain to feed us for another day i'll get our daily bread by going to work well gleaning is real work i know any of you raised on a farm or agricultural background not me so i have to read and study when i'm learning these things from the agricultural world of the old testament but gleaners were part of the harvest process Step one was the, the, the um, reapers. The reapers would be the first wave. Didn't have a combine, so your, your line of reapers would go through the field, picking or shucking or grabbing, cutting down, whatever kind of field it was, getting the grain. And as they passed through, they wouldn't obviously get everything perfectly cleaned out. So behind them would come gleaners. They would get the leftovers. They'd be looking for anything that the reapers might have missed, and they would pocket it. And you could imagine that would be hard work. Few and far between would be the grain, but if you did that all day, you might get enough to sustain yourself. So Ruth was willing to do some really hard work. She became a gleaner, and she put her faith in the Lord in action, saying, God will provide my daily bread but he wants to use my hard work to accomplish that. Now, let me just step aside from that or take a springboard from that, the principle that I think we could summarize this way. From the Bible, we learn we are saved by faith without works, right? It's not a combination. I trust Jesus, but then I also have to do a lot to help him. And between Jesus and me, we'll get myself to heaven. No. It's 100% Jesus who saves me. My faith in him, nothing I do adds to that. I'm saved by faith without works, but I'm saved by faith that works. See the difference? 
I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by my faith. And when I'm saved by faith, that faith will work to show itself. Here's a couple verses on your note sheet. I'll read real quickly. Ephesians 2. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. Otherwise, what would happen if we're saved because of the good things we do? Oh boy, we'd get to heaven we'd have a real pride fest, bragging on each other. Uh, no, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. Notice, we're created in Christ Jesus for the result of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, walk in good works. So faith is the basis for our salvation, not works. But notice a little later in the New Testament how James puts it, the balance, the harmony. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So this would be the person who would say, oh, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. Oh, really? Um, do, do you worship somewhere? No, I'm not into that church thing. Oh, uh, what part of the Bible do you like to read? Oh, I don't have a Bible. I don't want to read the Bible. Oh, uh, who do you serve? How do you minister to people in need? I'm not into other people. And on and on, you ask them questions. What are you doing with your faith life, your so-called well, I don't do those works things. I just have faith in my heart. What does the Bible say about that? That's a dead faith. That's not a real, live, saving faith. Any more than a body that has no breath or spirit in it is alive. Looks like a body. You can dress it up, put it in that fancy coffin. Uh, it looks like he's napping, but he doesn't have a pulse or a heartbeat. It's a corpse. It's not a living body. My faith is only real if I see it come out of my heart through the good works of obedience to God's word, worship, witnessing of him, serving other people, living a life in line with scripture, the works that show faith. They don't replace faith. It's a demonstration of faith. And Ruth gives us a model of that. And as she's doing that, if you were to read chapter two, the next few verses, guess whose field she happens to land in? A man by the name of Boaz, who, as you read about him, is this kind-hearted, gracious, generous boss. You ever had one of those? <laughs> They're few and far between, but isn't it wonderful to work for a man who respects you, who cares for you, even might be a believer. He loves the Lord Jesus or she is a faithful Christian and it shows in the way they treat their employees and their workplace and it's fun to go to that workplace. Guess what? Ruth just happens by the Lord's leadership to be in Boaz's field where she's reaping. Here's a principle that might help you and me. How did God put her in that right place with the right person? Because she had the initiative to get up and go to work and do something. And God steered her life accordingly. Go out to the parking lot today, and before you start up your car, start it up, but leave it in park. And try steering it when you're just sitting still. 
uh, even with power steering, it's a little hard to get that wheel to turn. But once you're moving down the highway, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to change lanes. You can almost do it with your finger, you know, a little flip of the wheel and that car steers a lot easier when it's moving than when it's sitting still. God can move my life and yours. He can direct and steer our steps so much better when we in faith are at least taking steps and through good works, doing something for God. He will guide us to where he wants us. And he wanted Ruth to be in Boaz's field. And there she was, reaping away. Chapter 3, real quick. Uh, time check. 11.03. Okay, I think we can do this. Uh, keep praying. I think the old preacher can get it done here. Let's, let's see. Chapter 3, Ruth is going to rest. <laughs> Ruth is going to rest. Look at the first verse. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And you'll find how she rests in a kind of a weird way, weird to our customs. There are little different customs back then. But you will find this as a chapter where Ruth, who in chapter 2 is working because of her faith, is now going to be resting and waiting on the Lord in that same faith. Do you realize that, friend? The same faith that works also at times, and sometimes simultaneously, is a faith that waits patiently on the Lord. His timing, His direction, His will. It might not be happening as quick as I want it. What I think, what I desire, what I plan... I have to always bathe in prayer to the Lord and say, but thy will be done, not mine. And sometimes that means the painful exercise for my soul of being patient. Because <laughs> I want it now, Lord. I want to see you do something great right away. But the Bible says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Isaiah 40. Or how about Isaiah 27? Wait for the Lord, be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And preach this to yourself as the psalmist did to himself. For God alone, O my soul, for God alone, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. We work by faith and we wait by faith. We wait to see how's God going to do this. I'm not sure. I'm not going to rush. I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to push my will. Sometimes I just have to say, Lord, your time, your will, let it be done. Thank you, Ruth, for showing us that wonderful harmony. You work in faith and you rest and wait on the Lord in faith. That pleases God. And then we get to chapter 4. Chapter 3 ends with Ruth making a type of an offer when she's looking at Boaz, considering his kind heart, um, his character, his love for God. Um, with the encouragement of Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth says, maybe, just maybe, he'd like a wife. And boy, would he be a, a godly husband. So she doesn't propose. That wasn't done in those days. But she makes herself available in this kind of weird thing in chapter 3 when Boaz is sleeping during harvest season. She uncovers his feet it's nothing hanky, it's nothing immoral. The scripture tells us there is nothing indecent or immoral, but it's just a way of uncovering his feet when he woke up 
and realized feet were uncovered, she was there to say, I would put myself gladly under your coverage. You know, as the blanket covers your feet, if you would want to cover me with protection and provision and security, meaning as a husband, um, I'm available and willing. She offered herself and Boaz was very thankful she did. Boaz said, I would love to have you as my wife. I would love to have the land because um, Naomi's husband died. The land in those days had to stay in the family. Uh, it couldn't be passed on to other tribes or family, but she doesn't have a husband and she doesn't have sons to pass it on. So the custom of the day was a family member, a relative, a kinsman would have the right to buy the property and take responsibility for it. So boy, I said, I would love to do that. And with the land, take care of you because you are a package. You go with that land. But I got to tell you this. There's another relative who's a closer kinsman than me. He has first right of refusal. So let's check with him. And if he wants to, it's his. But if he doesn't, this is God's will for me to take you and take the land. So chapter 4 is the happy ending of how that first kinsman passes on the opportunity and Boaz jumps all over it and says, I will redeem, I will purchase the land, and with the land I will take responsibility for the lady of the land, Ruth. And you have a happy wedding, which leads to a joyous birth and as you have probably seen with my wife or other grandmas or Dina or other grandmas, we just, we just, we lose it with grandkids. I mean, we just, you just gush all over them. And Naomi, the grieving widow who lost two sons, now has a grandson and it fills a lot of that void of her hurting heart. And they named this little boy Obed. Obed. So what's so important about his name? Well, I want you to look at the last two verses of the book. Look how this verse, how this book ends. A little strange to read, but, but hang with me as we read verses 21 and 22 at the end of the book. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And folks, who is David? Let's remind ourselves, who is David? The king of Israel to come, who's said to be the man after God's own heart, who wrote much of the Old Testament, who God used not only as a king, but as a prophet. He was a mighty man of God. And we're told, and maybe this is the main purpose for this book even being in the Old Testament, we're told how David got to be David. He came from a line, obviously, father, grandfather, great father. But in that lineage was a man named Boaz who took a Moabite woman, a foreigner, a Gentile, a poor widowed outsider to be his wife. And from that union, God gave a baby boy named Obed who became the grandfather of King David. And that's not the end of the story. If you want to find Ruth's name in the Bible, you'll find her one more time. When you go to the New Testament, 
You go five verses into the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, you basically find this last verse of Ruth restated in Matthew 1 with this addition, Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. And then from there down to David, and then if you keep going, a few more verses, and Jesus was born of Mary. In other words, Obed was the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Ruth, the Moabite, the Gentile woman, a widow woman who was hopeless and helpless, by God's grace becomes an ancestor of the Messiah, the ultimate redeemer that Boaz pictures in a small way. Jesus, the redeemer of all who will put their faith in him, will provide protection, provision, security. He will redeem us. The Bible says in Galatians 4, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Ephesians 1, in whom is redemption through his blood. He purchased us with his shed blood on the cross, dying in our place. And when we trust that death, burial, and resurrection, the love of Jesus Christ poured into our heart makes us his child, takes away the sin, puts in our heart the righteousness of Christ, we're ready to stand before a holy God. We're ready to live a life of faith, not it has begun. And we can show that faith in works, in waiting on the Lord, and in being a redeemed people by a wonderful Redeemer. What God did with a widow woman from Moab because of faith. What could God do with this group right here if we choose to have that same faith. Can you imagine what God can do? Not because of our greatness. Not even the greatness of our faith. You might think, oh, I don't have very good faith. I don't either. But it's growing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. But even mustard seed faith, Jesus said, can do some mighty things because of a great big God it believes in. Do you have this kind of faith? If not, maybe you need to make that decision of faith today like, like Ruth did. Maybe you need to choose today. That God's going to be my God. I want Jesus. I've never told him. I've never asked him to save me. I'm personally going to receive Christ today. And if you have, maybe God's challenging us to make some decisions on how we can show that faith clearly through the good works of obedience to God, worship, service, fellowship, ministry, outreach, godly living, resisting temptation, being a distinct piece of salt in a corrupting world, light in the dark world, letting our faith be seen, and a faith that waits patiently. Maybe you're not sure what God's doing in an area of your life. Maybe you're waiting on the Lord with a particular decision, a prayer request to me, and it doesn't seem like God's doing anything. Brother, sister, wait patiently on the Lord. His timing is perfect. He'll come through Let's keep waiting on him. Let's pray together. <clears throat>